You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Mickey. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Okay, you know what this is? Uh, hydroxychloroquine? No. Oh. Not even close. Um, uh, amphetamines? Very close. Um, wait, uh, Adderall? No. Oh. It's Sudafed. It's my performance-enhancing drug. Good. That I'm now going to take. <laughs> Maybe you should have taken it sooner. Doesn't it take a while to kick in? It kicks in after about 10 minutes, so we'll see what happens. That's fast. Um, but here's the thing. Performance-enhancing drugs are one of my themes because there was this town hall last night with Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. And he was pretty good. And there's only I mean, one explanation for that, isn't there, Mickey? That is correct. Sudafed. Um, <laughs> no. But it raises the issue, why is he terrible some days? Because he is terrible on some days. Mm-hmm. I have people who support him and went to a fundraiser and said he was practically a bowl of jello. <laughs> and he was quite good last night. And uh, and that should strike terror into the hearts of, of the Trump people, by the way, because Trump's last remaining hope was that Biden would be Revealed to be a, as I, as as I, I said, a cadaver at at the uh, debates. And as long as he takes this drug, he's obviously not going to be a cadaver. And uh, so the question is: I think the public has a right to know what drugs each candidate is taking. Maybe Biden is taking a drug that will wear off one year into his term, and you know sometimes drugs do that. Especially sometimes sooner in my experience. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, but I mean, taking it again and again uh, has a decreasing effect. Uh, And and so we're electing a guy for four years. If he's on, you know, Ibogaine or or Adderall or something that that isn't going to that's going to stop working in the middle of a negotiation with China, that's not so good. Well, actually, uh, Trump supporting cartoonist. Is it Scott Adams was was trying to circulate a rumor that they were giving him some specific anti-Alzheimer drug, right? That's what I was looking up while you were while we were preparing. It was it was it, preparing is they, not actually accurate. Nemand- I was I was trying to solve tech problems. Nemandel. or what? What is the name of the drug? I don't know. I'm not quite anyway, there yet in my own life. It, it was some. It was a post on 4chan. That allegedly by an ex Biden staffer about how they were giving him this, this anti Alzheimer's drug, but it had a bad side effect of incontinence. So then they were having to buy him depends. It was in retrospect. I, I was, I was, I was taken with it at the time. In retrospect, it's way too over the top. Yeah, no, it's first, bullshit. You sent first, you sent this to me. It had all the hallmarks of of fake news of a yeah, fake, it, a fake anonymous source. Well crafted, for, but it's fake. it was well crafted because it had some sort of gratuitous stuff about Ber- he was a Bernie bro and right. But it had it had some stuff about Seth Rich. Why would you talk about Seth Rich? Uh, it was on 4chan. If you really had the goods, why would you put the goods on 4chan? And uh, the whole incontinence thing is way over the top. So uh, it was, it wasn't just on the nose. It was over the top. 
and and it was irresponsible of Scott Adams to distribute it. I might say, but why, so why are you bringing this up then? If if the one if the one rumor turns out to be bullshit, well, forget that rumor. I'm saying I'm saying that there's something he takes, and <laughs> well, maybe it's nothing. If he takes nothing, he can say I take nothing. I think it's much more important than the candidates' financial disclosures. We need a drug disclosure. They should say what they take. Well, if yeah, Biden but- takes nothing, he can say he takes nothing. If Trump takes nothing, he can say he takes nothing. The public has a right to know what psychoactive substances their candidates are taking. Well, yeah, but why would you trust them to tell the truth? Are you going to give them, like, drug tests? I mean, Trump is said to be an Adderall junkie, and, and that, that rumor goes way back. And um, But do you expect Trump to tell the truth? Of course he's not going to tell the truth. Why would Biden tell the truth? That's a good point. I don't take, I don't trust Trump to tell the truth. Uh, but at least we get the truth from Biden. We've had four years of Trump. We know how he behaves. Biden's a pig in the poke. We want to know how this unknown quantity will behave in the future. Okay. I mean, well, we've seen Trump on Adderall. We know, we know what it produces. Not all pretty, but, um, uh, okay. Well, I'll, it is. I think you should email that suggestion to the Biden campaign and, We'll see how that gonna, works. I think I'm going to tweet it, Bob. The I, power I, of Twitter. Now, what is your what is your take on where the campaigns are? I mean, the national polls have drifted slightly in Trump's favor, it seems, over the last week. Whether you follow Real Clear Politics Aggregate 538 or this this interesting thing that USC does, where they pick several thousand people and they just they interview them regularly so it's the same people and you're seeing trends within this group and it's such a large number that the trends are probably significant and what do the trends show all of these things show that within the last week there's been a, a closing of the gap of somewhere between one and two points so that that uh Boy, biden is now ahead by around six points yeah that's and, where he's in the real clear politics average i uh, but i, I thought that trend has has stalled, I thought, and and uh, uh, you know I read Drudge as a uh, I'm a legacy reader of Drudge, even though he took me off the list of his links, um, and even though he's turned against Trump apparently, and he's turned against Trump, and if you read Drudge, you think the wheels are falling off Trump, and if you read Real Clear Politics, you think well it's not as good as it was last week for Trump. And if you read, you know, the New York Times and the Cook Report, uh, Trump has recently had the polls are coming in slightly worse for him. I, it, Wait, it's worse a, for Trump lately? Yeah, they've they've uh, the Arizona, there was an Arizona poll that was bad, and well, here's uh, there. Well, it's, it's true a, that it, it's true but, that as the national polls have tightened a little, the average, the swing state average, has not. Uh, tightened, and that leads me to believe that uh, Biden's media spending, which is presumably focused on the swing states, may be effective and may be fending off, neutralizing what little drift in Trump's favor there has been nationwide. I mean, basically, the race is, has been static for a while, and it's all up to the debates. And uh, two things happened at, at the town hall last night. I mean, that indicate it's, it's just not going to be easy for Trump. To provoke Biden into a disqualifying moment, uh, it, it, it's not going to happen easily. He's what are the things to... I didn't watch? Well, the, the fact that he stood 
stood there for two hours and gave coherent, detailed answers about policy questions. He stumbled a bit, but uh, he didn't seem, you know, he, he, he didn't seem like a guy who was going to wilt under, you know, pressure. And uh, the second thing is uh, he opened up this populist vein of, you know, I am a, I am a, you know, just an ordinary working class Joe from Scranton, and we're tired of you Wall Street New Yorkers looking down your nose at us, <laughs> which is very effective. It, it 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 diffuses Biden's hot button, which is that he's wildly insecure about, uh, you know, going not going to not having many academic impressive academic credentials, mm-hmm. and uh, it had two defects. One, it was, uh, you know, larded with Biden bullshit. He said he was, he repeated that he was the first. He said, they say that I'm the first in my family to go, go to college. Well, he, he's not the first in his family to go to college. We've been, we've been through that before. His mother and father may not have gone to college, but his father's father was uh, sort of was rich. Oh, but that's, so, that's not that bad. I thought you were going to okay. say a sibling of a younger, an older sibling went to college first. No, and this, but this, it's, it's fair to start counting with your parents, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And and the, the the second thing is, of course, Biden's actual policies uh, are the policies that have destroyed the working class that he claims to represent, uh, trade and immigration, uh, and enriched the Wall Street as he claims to hate. So if you look at his actual policies, they're the exact opposite of where he claims his affiliations are. But that, that didn't mean it was not an effective pitch. I thought it was a very effective pitch. And it would terrify me if I was Trump. Well, he can definitely pull off Joe Lunchpail in a way that Hillary couldn't. And, and, and he's actually better equipped to do it just in terms of atmospherics than Trump himself is. I mean, Biden has that, that regular guy look. Well, Trump, Trump could never pull off Joe Lunchpail. Well, no, but he pulled, he pulled off the appeal to the populist right. impulse. But there in are a way people, that Hillary couldn't. There are upper class people that can pull off Joe Lunchpail. Well, Joe Trump, Cl- Trump, Trump is to the, some extent one, but yeah. The journalist Joe Klein is, is, comes to mind. Uh, mm. he, you know, he lives in Westchester and is, you know, written novels and is wildly successful. And when you walk into the, when he walks into the convention and I've seen this, the cops wave at him. They say, Hey, Joe. Okay. You know, he's, he's one of them. So, um, I, I was with him once and, and General Petraeus walked through and general petraeus <laughs> said hey joe and, well, and and even had something ready to it was like i've been reading that book you recommended or something i mean so so joe is a utility infielder um he can he can go high and low apparently everybody loves joe but yeah. the wrong joe anyway um so i think it comes down to the debates it's like i'm being i'm being very unsophisticated here i should be talking about the oversampling of republicans in the 538 average and i just think all that's bullshit well i think you're right that not not much has changed i am a little puzzled by the fact that what change there has been seems to have been slightly in trump's favor because you'd think he had had a bad couple of weeks i mean i i I would have thought that the woodward thing would actually hurt i wouldn't think the jeffrey goldberg thing would hurt so much but but the woodward thing i i would have thought would hurt um, the wood. What did the Woodward thing add? I mean, it, it added that he he he. It just you made know, he, it, it did seem to convey that he knew there was cause to worry about the virus back when he was saying there's nothing to worry about. That's pretty damning. 
But it, but we know that he fucked up the virus. We know well, he shouldn't yeah, have said this, there's nothing to worry about. Well, you and, and I know, but presumably there were fence sitters who were still kind of doubting at it. Least, anyway. At least, at least it showed it what he wasn't deluded. Yeah. At least he was lying. Well, put it another way. If there has been just the, even the tiniest drift in Trump's favor, what, how would you account for that? Has Biden been doing something wrong? Has, Kamala Harris. Well, the economy is slowly bouncing back. The mm-hmm. the country is slowly opening up. There's the prospect of a vaccine. Every every time Trump appears in public, and Biden stays in his basement, and Trump doesn't say something idiotic like, uh, you know, why don't we ingest bleach? Uh, that helps Trump because he's the devil we know, and we say, well, maybe, gee, maybe I can live with the devil we know. Mm. Uh, so, and and See, there's the. The law and order thing, you know, goes both ways. I mean, it so as as Black Lives Matter's excesses come to light. I mean, assassinating cops in Compton probably not very popular. I think, uh, you know, if you, you polls among both blacks and whites show that they value the police, uh, you mm-hmm. know that, that, that it, all Trump had to do was not be insane. And and he's insane. So well, I almost look at it the other way. I mean, I mean, I just think there are enough people who would rather be delivered from Trump that all Biden needs to do is seem competent and sound, and that if anything, he's erring a little bit in the other direction. Sometimes he gets a little hyperbolic. Um, you know, he makes his mistakes when he's trying to disprove the sleepy Joe stereotype and he wants to get all excited and talk fast. That's when things go wrong. And, um, that's what I would actually warn him against. Uh, well, they can, yeah, they could sort of both be true because Trump is insane. So all Biden has to do is, uh, you know, seem competent and all there. And I think that's what the debates are about. It's a very low bar. He has to clear. Mm hmm. And dreading from last night, he's going to clear it. So Trump has to think of something else. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that. I didn't see it. Uh, uh, the, the, um... the 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 other the other point is his. Everybody agrees he's slowing down. Okay, you hear you hear talk from donors that they're alarmed at how much he's slowing down. Prob, you know, uh, and I think the slowing down helps him because it it. It tones down this hyperbolic quality that you talk about, which is when he gets excited and, and, and tries to, to emote, he A, exaggerates, B, lies, and C, he seems a little phony, okay, and out mm-hmm. of control. So the fact that he has to speak very carefully uh, will help his, uh, you know, help him uh, clear this low bar. He doesn't have to reach the high bar. He has to I absolutely cool. agree. He was, I thought he was a little over the top on climate change. I forget whether this was impromptu or scripted. Now, I thought it was okay to call Trump a climate change arsonist. That, that was, I kind of like that phrase. But in that same riff, he, he was going like, uh, you know, if, if we have another four years of inaction on climate change, and he was basically saying the next four years will be full of like, fire and blah, blah, blah. And and unless I'm mistaken, the, the challenging thing about climate change as an issue is that if you start reforms today, they don't do any good for a couple of decades or something, not for the four, next four years. Now, <clears throat> granted, you know, this isn't much of a, if Biden is wildly overstating things in this sense, it's not much of a tactical vulnerability because Trump's line 
is more or less that climate change isn't real. So he can't very well claim that uh, Biden misunderstands the dynamics of climate change if he's, if he's saying it's it's not a problem in the first place. But still, it just seems to me like like Biden should just be the calm. It, it, first of all, if you're going to be the voice of science, be the voice of science. Don't like exaggerate it, you know. But secondly, just be the voice of calm. It's like, you know, the, all the hyping about, well, th- this this you know, how both sides are accusing the other one of preparing to cheat in the election and then not accept the outcome. And you are here, and it is getting alarming. I mean, I mean the level of accusation. Um, but I think Biden should just say, look, I'm going to abide by the outcome. And if it goes to the courts, we will, of course, contest it vigorously, but I'll abide by whatever the courts say. And I think Trump will do the same in the end. I think in the end, he will abide by, you know, just be the voice of calm. And uh, we just want to be calmed down. We want a president who can calm things down. You hear that the, Demo- the, the Democrats have this committee to fight the election, including having unrest, and it's funded by all sorts of rich do-gooders, and it has all sorts of respectable organizations linked to it, like Demos. Wait, committee to uh, fight the election? Is that the it phrase? Was, it, it's on real clear politics. No, it's, it has some other name. It has the word committee to fight cheating in the election, something more like that, presumably. Am, can I can I can I go to the web without losing the feed? You can open a browser without losing the feed. Yeah, I, I mean, do you have more than one browser? You, you, uh, um, am I losing the feed now? No, you're still with us. This is and this is great TV. This is this is okay. high drama because at any moment it could go poofed, and okay, everybody well, knows here we that. Go. Um. Okay, the drama is fading. Uh, so we, the we, drama we, is fading. Okay, sorry. So I'll juggle. Wait. Political I'm gonna, landscape. Uh, I'm going to juggle. No, wait. I can't juggle. Um. Hang on. It's coming up. Here we go. Uh, the Fight Back Table, a coalition of liberal organizations planning for a post-election day apocalypse scenario. Um. Hmm. Uh, and it's funded by funds affiliated with Arabella Advisors, who I've never heard of. But um, it seems to be linked to all sorts of respectable organizations, and they're they are not saying we're going to just abide by what the courts say. Oh, they wouldn't and- say they're not going to abide by what the court. I'll tell you who is saying that. In effect, you know who is saying that. The person who's not going to who for better or worse has in the past been a harbinger of Trump campaign themes to come, and that is Steve Bannon on his podcast. What he is saying, I was listening to yesterday's, is, and he is saying this, um, it's it's more than subtext. He's not saying it quite like this, but it is the literal meaning of what he's saying. He's saying the votes cast on election day are valid, the mail-in votes are not. He's saying... Uh, if you listen to his Thursday podcast, that's the only way to read it, if you ask me, even though he didn't use his exact words. He says the votes that are cast in person, those are what he calls the secret ballot votes, the votes that, you know, are in keeping with American tradition, whereas apparently mail-in ballots uh, are do not qualify. And he's saying whoever's won at the end of Election Day has won. It's going to be Trump, and he ain't leaving. And that's, to me, a pretty dangerous message to be sending because, you know— this is a this is a probably 
uh, has the highest percentage of, of, of physically dangerous listeners of any major podcast in America, Bannon's podcast. Uh, and that'd be, um, that'd be an interesting ranking. Well, he beats know. us, I'll bet. I don't know. Have you, 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 you know more than I do? Some of our listeners. Um, the, uh, Bannon's right about the long-term potential of mail imbalance, but I think it's wildly irresponsible to to say that it, you know, mail imbalance now are, are are not valid. And also, uh, you know, the the pandemic is holding in check the many of the the uh, I think this is suggested by a reader many of the worst ballot harvesting techniques. Uh, may, people will be reluctant to go around and you know meet with fifty different people, maybe. Uh, and and take their ballots and deliver them. So uh, you know it may be it, the the negative uh, possibilities of of universal mail ballots will probably not be realized this election. I don't think. But speaking of doors, is it true that uh, Biden is not sending any workers out to knock on doors, and Trump is campaign workers? There, there was a big debate over Trump is sending workers out to knock on doors, and Biden. Isn't, but they claim that they have some other metric of, uh, it's not, it's not who you, uh, leave literature for in their door, but it's who you get a response from. And if you count, uh, virtual responses on the internet, uh, they're doing fine. It had the, it had a rationalization. I think they should knock on doors for good. I mean, you know, they should wear their mask, knock on the door, step back six feet. And then if nobody answers, slip the stuff under the door. At least, at least show, you know, make a, make your presence felt. I, I, I think that, that sounds like a mistake to me. But what do plus, I know? Plus, if you, if you, if columnists don't go out following door knockers, then they can't write columns about the great, how they're reassured about the great and good American people. That would be. Which is the yeah. sense you always get when you go knock on doors. Is yeah. more, more than the internet, you get the sense that people are okay. They're smarter than, you think they are? They are okay. Um, it's on the true, internet, That's on true. The in, on the internet, sometimes it's you don't get that impression. But, that is um, the tr- trouble with the internet. Uh, so you know what um, the good news for Trump is on the COVID front? It's not good news for humankind, but but this wouldn't be the first time that there's been a, an inverse proportion between those two, um, an inverse correlation. Um, I think there are two good. You know, I mean, there's obviously a little bit of a COVID upswing uh seems to be the first good news for trump is that it's at least as high in europe as in america i mean so maybe he'll increasingly be able to say look this is the whole world is having trouble with this right um but the other thing is uh it will lead to uh faster results on the um trial three phases of the viruses because the way they you know, the way they do the test, they don't do the sensible thing and just choose about 50 people and, and directly expose half of them to the virus. Um, rather, they, they choose thousands and thousands and thousands and send them out into the wild and tell them to behave the, the way they normally would. And and when things start getting meaningful is when a lot of people come down with the virus, presumably people in the control group who didn't get the vaccine, but but whatever. Um, and the faster that happens, the faster you have valid, statistically valid data. So, um, you know, Trump is going out on a limb with the, with the vaccine thing, right? I mean, he, he's virtually promising now that we're going to have a, a vaccine deliverable to at least some number of Americans before the election, right? 
Has he gone that far? That seems like I, quite I, a stretch. I think he has. And 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 um, maybe he's going to get Putin's vaccine. Uh, well, I think I, I think first of all, he may already have access early access to data. The data comes in every day on these trial three right. phases. They just right. don't publicize it. And and as I've said before, when you give a billion dollars of the government's money to each of a billion or more to each of like four pharma companies, you probably get to peek at their data, right? You can probably arrange that. And he may know that he's going to be able to say before the election, okay, this looks solid enough, this one vaccine that we can give it to, I don't know, emergency responders or we can give it to, you know, some, you know, start giving and, and they would have enough in hand now. Because this warp speed policy, which which makes sense to me, actually, uh, pays companies to go ahead and make the vaccines. So it insulates them from the commercial risk of making a vaccine that turns out not to work um, in, in at large scale. Um, and so, is, you know, we'll is, have a non-trivial number on hand. Is, and is warp speed basically the same as Bill Gates's idea? Well, Gates, Gates wanted to actually build factories. I guess. Yeah, Gates was saying basically he would assume the financial right. risk. He was going to build four, I think, factories and look at the most promising vaccines and start producing them. He may be doing that already. But aside from that, Trump is insulating the companies themselves from risk right. and saying, and they're agreeing to produce the things now and guarantee America preferential access to them, I well, think. You know Trump is going to do that. It's just a question of how bullshit it is. Uh, you know, I mean... Well, I think... It's like Jimmy Carter's proclamation of a promising peace deal... Uh, know, right before a key primary. I mean, it's it's going to do it. It turned it turned out in that case to be bogus. And I you know, think everything, everything Trump's done so far has been a little like not airtight, right? He just needs like one cop or emergency responder to be on camera being injected with a vaccine. And I I think if he's saying as much as he's saying now, he may he may have reason to believe he can make that happen before November. I I keep thinking of your poor friend Jonathan Edwards. Ah, oh, could we review for for people who may not be as scholarly as you? Jonathan Edwards, I'm not scholarly. The, the figure uh, perhaps most prominently associated with the Great Awakening, who, who by the way, you know, ironically, was a big he was a big science. I mean, he was an evangelical in some sense. Um, obviously, the the Great Awakening was very evangelical in spirit. This is like in the 18th century. Um, but he was, he was very much trying to reconcile enlightenment ideas with theology and he was very pro-science. And for that reason, he agreed to take the smallpox vaccine back in its early days. And that's what killed him. He was, he was president of Princeton University and, uh, is buried in the, in the Princeton cemetery there. He was president of Princeton University? He in fact was. Is that why the head of Princeton said that, uh, Princeton was founded on racism. Now that's still, a fascinating development. First of all, was, am, first I, am I am I am I guilty if I thought that that was hilarious and Princeton deserved it? Oh well, that's the whole idea. I mean, this is like the Justice Department trolling them, right? I mean, yeah, like it, so you can explain. You can explain. Yeah, so Chris Eisgruber, president of Princeton. Um. Well, it goes back to the Woodrow Wilson thing. So first, in the wake of the George Floyd thing, he comes out and says, we are going to um, uh, rename the Woodrow Wilson School 
I've I've finally I've come around to thinking that it shouldn't be named after him. And it's interesting because a few years earlier, he had withstood a round of. And in fact, one of my daughters sat in his office. She's a. We don't have exactly identical views on this particular issue, but I'm very proud of her. Um, she she was part of the sit-in in his office over the Woodrow Wilson issue in the first round. And um, he was, uh, I think at that point, pretty dismissive of the idea. They, they did make some modest concessions. But anyway, this time around, he comes out and he says, yeah, it's horrible. Wilson's horrible. We're changing the name. And then the faculty, some, some faculty members got a, hundreds of faculty members. I don't think quite a majority of the faculty. We had hundreds, several hundred faculty members to sign on to this letter about, you know, fighting racism at systemic racism at Princeton and, and and most of it probably is pretty reasonable but there were a couple of uh, uh dodgy items like uh professors of color should get longer sabbaticals and there should be a committee that to police certain things and that scared some people you know to police uh it sounded like to police the uh, expression of professors when it when it seemed to venture into realms relevant to race and so on anyway in the course of, I think it was in the course of commenting on the letter that Eisgruber did this mea culpa or wea culpa or something about how, yes, Princeton is something to the effect that it's systemically racist to the Justice Department. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is kind of funny. Trump's Justice Department says, oh, well, then we should investigate you because according to what is it? I don't know. Is it Title IX or what? But, but. You know, we are obliged to investigate strong evidence of racism at any university. Thank you, President Eisgruber. Um, so he per- perhaps could have spoken in more muted tones in retrospect. The, um, uh, I- I've never, I mean, Wilson was a racist. Uh, he got America into World War One, and he believed in the unit, he believed that the, he, the problem uh america was insuff- was uh too parliamentary i believe so he he was wrong on three important issues uh screw him take his name off he's <laughs> okay. the worst he's one of the worst presidents in history we had this but, conversation did we uh, okay but um so i'm with but, your daughter but, uh i i applaud that position mickey <laughs> I, I, your, 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 your slow drift toward wokeism, I think is, is reassuring yeah. to many of our viewers and I listeners. Think, I think I'm going to have to take another one of these. Things. I think you, should, I think you need more speed. Yes. If I were you, I would um, snort the next one because it's not, it's not kicking in fast <laughs> yeah. enough. Um, um, so, uh, well, uh, the thing about, you know, black professors get longer sabbaticals. Everyone who is not 16 years old is now 16 years old. It was pretty scary. Wait, wait, what, was, is that, what is that? What is that part? That's mean? a reference to bananas. When the dictator takes power, he says, <laughs> everyone who is not 16 years old is now 16 years old. And you will have to change your underwear every day and wear it on the outside so we can check. Okay. <laughs> Woody Allen says, power has driven him mad. <laughs> anyway, okay, so, Woody um, Allen's another another cancellation subject we should talk about sometime but really but go ahead well he's been canceled should he have been canceled fascinating topic um 
We've been chastised though, by, by one of our patrons not to say we'll discuss this in the in the parrot room because this pa- patron said that that might be offensive to the viewers who have chosen not to go to patreon.com slash parrot room and support us and also gain access to the parrot room. So I'm not saying we're going to discuss that there. Well, I, I think we're. Hey, but you know Wait, what? I'm not saying I'm not saying in the paradigm we don't look down our noses at the people who aren't in the paradigm. That would be sort of an offensive elitist thing to do. But I'm not saying we do, and I'm saying uh, apparently there's only one way for them to find out, isn't there, Mickey? Whether um, we do or we don't. No, but seriously, uh, we 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 are now up to uh, 450 patrons. We thank them all. Not all of them even do the paradigm thing. I think some of them just uh, uh, realize that if they want fearless truth telling. In journalism, they're going to yeah. have to support it because yeah. they're not going to um, get it from the mainstream media. You, you, uh, you, you want to hear a quick mainstream media critique just to back that up? Sure. So Redfield, the head of CDC, says this thing about how, in a way, masks are more effective than vaccines and also says, you know, most Americans are not going to have access to a vaccine for until well into next year. And remember, right. and, and Trump comes back and disses him. Right. Correct. So the New York Times homepage headline here is Trump again scorns science on vaccine <laughs> on vaccine and masks. Well, now, this, go ahead and then I'll give you my critique of this headline. This, this brings up Jim Fallows' media critique. A, it's, it, he has a big piece in the Atlantic about how the press is making the same mistakes it made in 2016 and, and not realizing that Trump is a sui generis threat and they yeah. have to change their rules. A, it's hard to read headlines like that and say that the press is, isn't sufficiently anti-Trump. B, it's all, it's all, uh, based on this sort of comically naive idea that if only the press were tougher on Trump, people would realize that he's a charlatan and a liar. Uh, A, uh, nobody, Nobody has seen of all the people in America. Nobody seems to be practicing the form of of uh, activist journalist journalism that Fellows would want. So it's hard to say. And B, it's absurd. Everybody knows he's a charlatan and a liar. They vote for him anyway because they like his policies. He Fellows is vastly overstating the effect of journalism on the voters. Well, not only it's, that, I mean, the jur- journalists are by and large doing what he says. I don't, the lead paragraph associated with the piece whose head, whose homepage headline I just read, I don't have it uh, with me, but I remember it specifically the lead paragraph called, uh, unless I'm getting this mixed up with another story, but anyway, called Trump's claim outlandish and some other comparable adjective. And I think that's just bad because, first of all, that's a judgment call. That's not for a reporter to make. And secondly, this winds up playing into Trump's hands because he has ammunition when he tries to convince his followers that it's the fake. It's the fake news media. Right. Um, uh, I, I do. I Jim has one good point, which is that they, the New York Times made too much of Hillary's emails. I did think that Hillary's email story was overblown from the beginning. You know, what she did might have been illegal, but probably shouldn't have been illegal. Uh, and, uh, but even that wasn't responsible for, for Comey reopening the investigation, which was the key move, which was not a press failing. Um, and also, uh, a, a point against Jim, his big example, uh, toward the end of his piece is 
Less than three months have passed since news broke of Russia paying bounties for the deaths of U.S. troops in Afghanistan, and it's rarely covered. Well, it was covered this week because a bunch of military officials said they, they weren't convinced it was true. Maybe that's why the press wasn't paying well, the much pre- attention. The press covered the hell out of that story. They when it overcovered broke. it, and 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 the 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 recent story was, you know, they they're looking at the evidence, and the evidence isn't airtight. Now I don't quite know why the evidence isn't airtight. They they did some Taliban who was captured said that there were Russian payments. Is the is the issue were the Russian payments for bounties on troops? Why uh, on killing of troops? Why does it matter that they pay bounties? They're giving, Russia is giving them aid. It's yeah. obviously going to be right. used to kill people. Right. Uh, and, and so specifically bounties on U.S. Jews. Why is that such an added dollar? Well, and, We're waging a proxy war there. And, and, you know, we kill them, they kill us. That's oh, yeah. what war is. I mean, what, you know, you could ask who started this? What did we do beginning in the late seventies and early eighties, but pay, uh, Afghans and, and, uh, basically and Muslims of other nationalities like Osama bin Laden to kill, to kill Russians. Um, what exactly is the moral difference between that and making, giving it, you know, between giving them the weapons and the wherewithal and everything else they ask for and paying them a formal bounty? You're subsidizing the killing of people in a proxy war. Happens all the time. Um, the, uh, I just want to say quickly on that head, the Trump again scorned science on vaccine and masks. The funny thing is, this was a close call. Redfield uh, himself said, uh, now this is going to sound weird, but uh, I'm going to say that like masks are in a way more effective than vaccines because the vaccine might be effective only 70 percent of the time. Well, OK, but if you take that vaccine and then do an antibody test and realize it has stimulated antibodies, you're a hell of a lot better off than you would be wearing a mask. So, you, you know, and then as for Redfield saying, I don't think a vaccine will really be ready until X. You know, that has to do with judgments about how much risk is tolerable and so on. So so neither of those is science speaking. And I just don't like to sustain the myth that anybody with a Ph.D. or a white lab coat is like the voice of science. And the rest of us are helpless in the faith in the face of their authority. Um, Anyway, it's just I agree. Well put. <sighs> so the, what else um, can I, I – I'm just getting wound up. I do want to – you're, you're rapidly passing me on your way to the right. I, I love this. Well, no, I've all – I have all along – look, the good chance to plug my newsletter, the Non-Zero newsletter, available at nonzero.org for free because previously its name was the Mindful Resistance newsletter. And the idea all along was the resistance is being too reactive and playing into Trump's hands. And, and I think – the New York Times is over the top anti-Trumpism is helps him. I think it helps what, him. What's been annoying me lately is on Twitter, all the Times reporters, they always hyped each other's stories and they're going, they're going like quite a lead. You know, they, they competed with each other for the most anti-Trump lead and they go quite a topper on this one by, you know, by so and so. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and there's sort of like, is, 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 the New York Times has become journalists in a way. It's where they're each trying to impress each other with how anti-Trump they can do be. Do you mean journalist? Is that, is that an allusion to journalist? Yes, that, that's what I said, I think. Journalist. Ezra Klein. Ezra Klein's thing? You Ezra gotta, Klein. you gotta unpack that for our younger viewers, you know. Well, I mean, it, Ezra himself is almost eligible for social security by now, I think. I know he's rapidly becoming Hugh Sidey. <laughs> I had to, there, there was, there was, uh, 
there was somebody somebody said uh that they had praised me on their podcast that Matt had praised me on his podcast so I listened to what I thought was the most recent podcast which was an hour of discussion of the filibuster <laughs> and what course, you mean the weeds the weeds and Matt of course Iglesias praised you no that's what I heard but I don't doubt who the hell knows any, he didn't praise me on the hour log of the filibuster and it was really I now know a lot about the filibuster and they are both impressive talkers in that they are in that Ezra never says Amana, which I say all the time. Matt rarely does either. And Matt rarely does either. And the um, the the squeals and the the pit the the octave range of Matt's you know <laughs> cries are, is just really impressive. I mean, you you they'll come back. Okay, now we're back, and they'll go. It's like it's incredible. Well, they it's like both he should do be the, the leader the, of a rock band or something. They both do the young uh, folk thing of ending every sentence as if it's a question. And I used to so do that. when they talk, the vo- did you see that? Is that the vocal fry? What? <laughs> There's something called a vocal fry. <laughs> anyway, but listen, let me say as if it was a question. The weeds, their their immersion in policy detail is very impressive. A, but that's not Ezra's main podcast. His the Ezra Klein show is also very good. Okay. Anyway, e- even the many episodes that weren't he, me talking about my book. His destiny is to. To, is is to be the responsible, wise old man in Washington, and he's well on his way. You could but, do um, worse. You could do worse. Uh, how did he, we get onto Ezra Klein? By the way, I don't know. Oh, but I, I'm, here, I'm here to defend journalists. What he when when Felix Frankfurter first came to Felix Frankfurter is the, is the prototype of the overambitious uh, Washington policy climber, and when he came to Washington, he and his roommates opened something called. The House of Truth, uh, which is they would invite people over to their house and they were completely bold about it. They invited Supreme Court justices and senators. And of course, they discover what everybody else in Washington discovers. Those people will show up. <laughs> so they actually showed up at the House of Truth and Felix Frankfurter's career as a policy climber was launched. Uh, Ezra Klein sort of is the modern day incar- incarnation of Felix Frankfurter in that he opened a virtual house of truth called Journalist, where he invited all the prominent liberals uh, to join uh, to join in a sort of chat room, and and he discovered that most of them showed up, and and they could sort of hash over and hash over sort of the storyline before they went public, which I thought was bad for the public because you didn't get to see the machine working. And also they tended to egg each other on into, uh, you know, they, they tried to please each other with their expressions of liberalism uh, before they were corrected by Matt Iglesias. And who, so, what, um, what was the controversy, uh, though? It, they, somebody leaked some emails in which some member – this wasn't the Dave Weigel controversy, was it? Dave was in some were, kind of controversy. There were several controversies. Weigel, Weigel was one of the ones who was egged on to being more irresponsible than he ordinarily is. And there were some other cases by the peer pressure of journalists. And, and as a result, he sort of had to leave his job at the Washington Post. And then he redeemed himself totally yeah. by pure hard work. Uh, so, and everybody respects him now. He's so, so he, he spent purgatory me. at Slate and then was welcomed back. Uh, he to just Washington Post. worked his fucking way back up the mountain. Well, he's incredibly. All these uh, people are. I think. I mean, I, we should ask all of these youngsters what drugs they're on. They're incredibly productive. 
I think universal drug disclosure, if we're going to have, before you can get the universal basic income, you have to disclose exactly what drugs you have. I'm anyway, the, um, the, this, the, um, the second thing was somebody leaked to me a bunch of, uh, a bunch of the transcripts and I published them. Um, and they were just people pissing on Marty Parrots, if I remember correctly. Wow. Uh, and I intended, I intended to put it to, put them up in two installments and at the end of the first installment it became clear that there was like nothing that was going to be added by putting up the second installment so i didn't do it but um marty it, was it, the owner of the new republic at that time for our younger viewers and listeners there should be a yeah. single word that means viewers or listeners i think in the age of podcast shouldn't there listeners uh only ones because all podcasts are visual now too well many are yeah many are. um anyway so so the New York Times has become a self-egging on sort of echo chamber of mutual mm. praise in the same way that journalist at its worst was. And you've got these like That's experts on journalism like Jay Rosen, who I, I has he ever actually worked as a journalist? I mean, good question. And, and Bob, you know, and, and he's ever turned out the journalism that James Fallows wants journalists to turn out. I don't know. I, I, I don't know that he's ever been. I mean, I, 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 I don't know. But um, anyway, I, I think the, the, you know, the, the he side, he said, she said, the, 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 this side said, that side said. I think there's something to be said for that kind of journalism. I won't, I won't defend it further here today. There, is, you know, a lot ha other things happened this week that I, I want to talk about. Well, a couple of things, but go ahead. Okay, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, there's there's TikTok, and then there's the Abraham Accords. And I'm ready. What? I'm ready for the. I also have an Epstein report. Let's keep them. I think that's the one they'll stick around for. Let's force them to endure some uh, tech news and some Middle Eastern policy news. Okay. So good, first, tick, TikTok. So uh, the state of play on that. So today, Trump announced that both TikTok. And WeChat will be removed, have to be removed from the app stores, Google App Store and, and iPhone app stores. I don't know, right about now, I think almost immediately. And they are going to do other things that, in effect, disable or compromise the functionality of WeChat right away. Um, and then uh, things are going to be done comparably to TikTok. After the election. Now that's interesting. Okay. So here's what I, here's what basically happened. So, um, as you know, Trump, uh, basically said, um, we're gonna, you know, weeks and weeks ago said, we're gonna shut down TikTok unless it's sold to an American company. China, um, the Chinese government a few weeks ago, and it looked like Microsoft was gonna buy it for a while. Chinese government, uh, came back and said, well, we decided we're not going to let TikTok uh, export its intellectual property to the United States. We have doubts about that. In other words, you're not going to get a hold of the algorithm, blah, blah, blah. So that meant like a flat out, they did various things to make the flat out sale scenario difficult. And at the time I thought, wow, they're calling Trump's bluff. They realized, you know, Trump had said you got to sell by mid-September right. or TikTok is gone. And I thought, Maybe China understands that he does he's not going to have the nerve to shut down TikTok before the election. There are tens and millions of happy TikTok users, including some Trump supporters and some undecided voters. And uh and and, and I 
wondered if China was doing that. Um, and interestingly, so meanwhile, there's this, the, there's a, an important subplot I want to get back to, which is that Oracle uh, becomes uh, the lead candidate for doing some kind of deal with TikTok that would allow it to survive. Oracle's chairman, Larry Ellison, is a Trump fundraiser. Uh, and Oracle's CEO actually worked with the Trump transition team. Okay, so there's a they're on a committee, a Trump transition team committee. So there's a deep connection between uh, Oracle and Trump. And Trump's not overdoing it. Transition no, teams. There are hundreds of people who work with transition teams. It's okay, it's fine. Like, but but Trump publicly gives Oracle its blessing, uh, his blessing, which it doesn't do with Microsoft. Okay. And suddenly, okay. lo and behold, Oracle is in the lead. It looks like Oracle is going to get it. And by the way, that's probably still going to happen. But interestingly, um, what Trump has done is he did go ahead and 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 either shut down or deeply compromise WeChat, like as of now, before the election, because the only people who care about that are a relatively small number of Asian Americans who, who use it to communicate with their relatives and friends in China and probably wouldn't vote for him anyway. But he he decided that nothing serious is going to happen to TikTok until after the election. I mean, you can't download it now, but everybody who's already got it doesn't need to download it. Um, so... There's all of that, um, but where, where are you going with this? You're saying that this, this whole thing is bullshit. Well, I, I want to say uh, there Trump are people did, who say that. There are Trump, people who say that. No, I don't think it's all bullshit. But Trump did back down. He had said he's going to shut TikTok down mid-September. China called his bluff. He said not really. Okay. Now he 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 can plausibly shut it down in November because that's after the election. But what does this have to do with Oracle? Oracle is some kind of vague partner. They didn't buy it. Let me get They're, back to that. Let me get know, back what, to what that. What are they, you know, as Matt Stoller says, what are they going to do? Share a pizza? I mean, what, what are they doing? Let me get back to that. I, I think in almost any scenario, so it's looking like it's not going to be an out and out sale. That, that didn't make sense anyway for various reasons, but it does look like Oracle, all of the data, all of the U.S. TikTok operation, is going to be in the U.S. Oracle is going to control it. They are going to vouch for the security of the data and that no, you know, Americans' data aren't going anywhere where they they shouldn't go. And and they're going to get some kind of stake in probably in ByteDance, the owner, the Chinese owner of TikTok. Uh, but it seems to me likely in any scenario that Oracle is going to have the power to exert some degree of control on the TikTok content. The power to just say, nope, this, you know, the way Mark Zuckerberg now does sometimes. He just kills certain things and Trump people complain about it. Sometimes they probably should. I think Oracle is going to have that power. And again, Larry Ellis, both the chairman and the CEO of Oracle, are Trump supporters. And I just want to review how this came to be, okay? Trump said basically, hey, nice uh, social media company you got there. Be a shame if something bad was to happen to it and it wasn't to be allowed uh, to operate in America, unless maybe you deliver it to the control of my political cronies. And now that's going to happen. Now, I'm, I'm not saying this is going to wind up being hugely consequential. Maybe it won't even if Trump is reelected. TikTok isn't a highly political thing. Although Sarah Cooper, Trump's nemesis, got her start there. It, and it, and it can become, any social media can become very political. And I'm just saying that Trump did this thing that was weird. And heavy-handed to begin with, uh, of just saying to a company, as it happens, a foreign company, I'm going to shut this down unless you sell it to such and such. Um, 
And the result of that is going to be that Trump has coerced uh, a company into into delivering a social media, major social media platform to the control of his supporters. And even if nothing bad comes of this, it's a really bad precedent. It's one of many cases where Trump, uh, you know, uh, helps American political norms evolve in a bad direction. And you're going to you're going to tell me like it's no big deal, as you always do. Um, But the thing is, it's it's not even getting any attention because Trump is so busy breaking norms in so many places. Always getting some attention. But no, no. Who is saying what I just said? Who is saying what I just said? I've seen it on I've seen it on. You've said it more clearly than I've seen it on Twitter. But I've seen a lot of talk about how Larry Ellison is a Trump guy. Um, But so he's delivered one out of five social media sites into his supporters. The other four are controlled <laughs> by his enemies. The idea the idea that Trump is going to be able to craft this alternative reality where black is white and white is black, and uh, I think it's overblown. Uh, I think it's hard to control what goes on TikTok. They'd be very hard put to... to, to they can ban Sarah Cooper, but beyond right. that, they can't bear, ban all the Sarah Cooper wannabes, uh, I don't think. And, uh, so yeah, it's, it's a bad precedent. The Democrats have their own. It's not, he's not the first person to, uh, to, to try to exercise the government power this way. What are, uh, what are, who, who else did this? Well, the most famous one was, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe garbling my scandals, but the IT&T scandal of Nixon. Uh, right before one of his nominating conventions, he had Felix Roatan, who was at the time called Felix the Fixer. He was not a great statesman at the time. Uh, cut some sort of deal with AT and T. Now, what, what was uh, the you media mean IT&T, connected? International Telephone. Yeah, I, yeah, but was that the, wasn't a content. That wasn't. There was no there content may have been control some content, there. But he was. That was Nixon just a commercial. Was always, that Nixon was, just, was always trying to intimidate the networks. Uh. Presidents always try to intimidate the networks, you know. Uh, well, and they have they had control in the old days. The FCC, uh, right. you know, the they networks answered tools. the FCC. So it's, 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 I just think I think there is a uh, tradition it, of there is a tradition of this this flouting of uh, scrupulous rules. And if you talk to if you talk to to real politicos who like real advisors, they completely acknowledge that so and so is our company. You know, Pepsi's our company. Coke is their company. Uh, they'll yeah, but none of those it, have it, the kind of influence. Social I know, media but they do that in. with networks too. So uh, it's well, yeah, um, clearly media properties do. But it, it's, I'm obviously uh, you know. not up on the IT and T scandal, but I will. Um, I, I just right, I won't uh, talk about it in the parrot room, but I will know about it by next week. And you might talk about it in the parrot room. Um, <laughs> so, uh, oh, yeah, maybe the suit of Fed will kick in by then, and it'll it'll all become clear. So. Um, you were going to talk about the Abraham Accords. Abraham Accords. I've I've read six commentaries on the Abraham Accords, which, as you know, is not my area of expertise. Nor do I want to acknowledge that Jared Kushner, on whom I've heaped abuse along with everybody else, actually might have stumbled onto something constructive. I can help, Mickey. I can keep you from having to acknowledge that. Okay. You want me to do that? Help me, Bob. Well, first of all, as you may rec- recall, 
The idea was that Jared was going to deliver a peace deal. A peace deal consists of taking parties that are in conflict and reducing or ending the conflict. It doesn't consist of taking parties that are already working together and formalizing this relationship of concord. I'm not saying it's insignificant that two Arab countries are now uh, recognizing Israel and bringing it to a total of four. Um, that is significant. It's just not a peace deal. And yet it's being, you know, journalists are using the term that way. As you may recall... Peace deal was supposed to refer explicitly to peace between Israel and the Palestinians. And, and, and this doesn't seem to accomplish that, uh, so far as I can but tell. If it, if it, everybody agrees it hurts the Palestinians in Iran and Iran. And if it marginalizes the Palestinians in a way that encourages them to wise up and accept some sort of peace deal down the road, Wise Why up, is- wise up. Yeah, so it's been, so they, they have been deluded all along. They, they, what is the great deal they rejected? Well, I, I, what, what I, offer of a two state solution did they unwisely reject? What, what was in that? Well, I, this, the standard answer is the Jimmy Carter Accords. Uh, and, uh, and you're going to say, I think no, the standard answer is, the- a, you're going to point to an article in foreign policy that said, they were actually weren't all that favorable to the Palestinians and they were right to reject it. I think the standard answer is the Camp David Accords of the Clinton administration, not to be confused with the Jimmy Carter. Right. Camp David That's State. what I meant. Um, <laughs> let me let me first say one thing before I get into that. This deal does is gives a ton of U.S. weapons to UAE, which is one of the most destabilizing countries in the Middle East, has in the past used its weapons to kill tons of Yemenis and has, and also, uh, I think has, has made Saudi Arabia even more irresponsibly belligerent than it might otherwise be. A lot of people think that UAE's ruler is kind of, uh, is kind of the, 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 the manipulator behind MBS. But in any event, um, and, and both UAE and Bahrain, the two Arab countries in question, are, are deeply authoritarian, repressive. Um, I mean, you may notice that, that no Arab democracies have, have, uh, you know, I mean, like, uh, say Tunisia or Lebanon have, uh, have chosen to recognize Israel. And this just gives Israel, uh, uh, and the United States probably an incentive to actually sustain and uphold the authoritarianism in UAE and and, and Bahrain. You claim that the two-state solution is dead, dead, dead. You claim to have realized that years ago. So if this this kills the two-state solution, how is it a problem since the two-state solution is already dead? Well, first of all, I mean, let me, there there are people claiming, uh, there are people on Jared's side claiming what you just earlier trotted out, the idea that, well, um, the Palestinians, you know, they they just uh you know the old the, the the joke that has become kind of a mainstream american foreign policy joke uh the palestinians have never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity um the idea there that there, there are many times when they should have accepted a deal and so what you need to do and this is a view that's common in israel and on the uh pro israel right in america what you need to do is just really drive home to them how powerless they are. You just need to kind of keep hitting them until they finally admit it. That is, uh, that's the idea. And there are people who think, as you do, that, that, um, or as you suggested, that 
This will, by reducing their leverage further, which it does, finally drive home the point to them that they have to um, accept what's been offered. Right. So I just want to emphasize that a state, in, in a meaningful sense of the term, has never been offered. I mean, if you ask, what what does a sovereign state entail? Okay. Well, you do things like you control your airspace, you control your borders. Yeah, you can have a military of, you know, uh, whatever you kind of military you see fit to, you know, within uh, the constraints of international law that, that you uh, see fit, uh, see necessary to defend yourself. Well, so far as I can tell, um, Israel has never been willing to, to make any of those things part of uh, a two state solution and have, have uh, kept them off the table unless I'm mistaken. So. You know, it's state. Uh, there, no sovereign state has ever been offered the Palestinians. I mean, I mean, there haven't been that many formal offers. Period. But when they've kind of talked loosely about well, what we could live with and what you could live with, no one has ever offered them anything remotely resembling an actual right. state. You you claim to have personally told John Kerry that the two state solution was dead. So what was he supposed to do? Pursue this better version of the two state solution, or do what Jared did, which is arrange for this extra two-state solution, extra two-state peace between Israel and the Arab world. Um, well, you're right. I, I In 2011, I found myself sitting next to him on a plane. It was such a small plane that there was no first class, which is why I found myself sitting next to him. And I had just come back from Israel, from the West Bank. And... um. And, you know, I probably somewhat ostentatiously was looking at this this map that I had in my uh, of the West Bank. It wouldn't surprise me reflecting on it if I thought it might get his attention. Who knows? But it did. He, he, he said, oh, so do you have a solution? <laughs> I said, actually, I'm now convinced that a two state solution is impossible. This is before he was secretary of state. He could right. have saved himself a lot of trouble by listening to Bob Mickey. Did he? No. Um, but you're saying that he should go back to it. That's what I don't understand. No, I'm just explaining why the idea that uh, I'm just trying to explain. First of all, there's, there's a lot of stuff Americans just don't understand because American media just do not exactly underscore it. I mean, let me tell you some things I saw on the West Bank. OK, so this is called the Abraham Accords. OK. We went to the tomb of Abraham. Have you ever been there? At least the purported tomb of Abraham. Recognized by all three Abrahamic religions as the tomb of Abraham. Have you ever been there? Uh, no. Okay. It's in Hebron. So first of all, uh, now Hebron is in, is in the occupied territory. And one thing you notice there is like, um, you know, at the tomb of, uh, tomb of Abraham is where this, uh, Israeli Jewish terrorist, Baruch Goldstein, gunned down, I don't know, 20 Palestinians or something. His, his grave, uh, his tomb is there in the cemetery. And, uh, there are always fresh flowers there, at least were then, because the settlers, uh, the religious, you know, there are kind of two kinds of settlers in Israel, just the, you know, more or less secular, taking advantage of government incentives that lead them to settle in settlements. And then the religious settlers and some of the re- religious settlers are hardcore. So first of all, these people like he is he is a hero. So 
um, the the you know some of the the settlers that Israel has transplanted to what is under international law Palestinian territory um, are of this type. They are celebrating and almost you know daily celebrating or a, a, a terrorist. But the other thing about Hebron is it's one of the most uh, it was it was the most apartheid like thing I saw there. There's a street. From the tomb of the Patreons, uh, patriarchs to kind of downtown Hebron, um, which takes you into part of Hebron that's more thoroughly under Palestinian control, although nothing is ultimate, everything is ultimately under Israeli control in the West Bank. And Palestinians aren't allowed to walk on the street. It's only for Jews. And Palestinians to walk from the tomb to downtown Hebron have to, you like look up in this hill and there's this kind of like, uh, you know, this path that they're like pushing strollers along and stuff because they're not allowed to walk on the street. Um, the, you know, we were taken on this tour by uh, this group called um, uh, Breaking the Silence, these former uh, Israeli soldiers who were in the right. occupation. And, uh, and I mean, the stories they told us, one... Uh, you know, and I, I don't want to go on forever about this, but I, I just really think when you see the way this whole thing is being processed in the media, like, why haven't the Palestinians accepted one of these great deals? Maybe this will drive it home to them. And, and, and what you appreciate when you're on the West Bank is like, if they have any sense of or, normal human dignity and pride, of course, they're not going to they're not going to get down on their knees, given the way they're treated. Um, the Why wouldn't they want to cut a deal where they would have a street that they could walk on? Well, if it involves acknowledging that unlike all other people in the world, you are not worthy of having an actual sovereign state, maybe their pride and dignity would keep them from that. First of all, it's not I, like aren't there, I, I mean, a lot it's, of, aren't there a lot of places in the world where there's not an actual sovereign state, where there's sort of a semi-state? Uh, thinking well, of thinking of uh, when, when when nations Crimea, for example. Anyway, sorry. No, Crimea, no. I mean, a better example would be Iraq after Saddam Hussein attacked Kuwait and they were under certain constraints with what they could do. Yeah, when countries violate international law, fine. But Palestinians are supposedly you're just going to start off uh, under in the penalty box because you're Palestinians. Um, I just want to say one more thing about the... So I later had... Um, one of the guys from Breaking the Silence on my podcast, and he told me the story about what they used to do. You know, um, you know, Israeli soldiers have the right to go into any Palestinian home at any time, right? So if they right. suspect there's some bomb maker in a Palestinian home, they will do a raid like at night, 3 a.m., you know, the way American cops might in a similar situation, okay? But they need to practice in order to do that, Okay. Naturally, you don't want to screw it up. You want to practice. And what he explained to me is the way they practice is they just uh, they go into a home at 3 a.m. and they don't tell the family it's practice. They just go home. Father's against the wall in handcuffs. You know, three old kids are like wetting their pants. They take everybody down, blah, blah, blah. And then they say, just kidding. Okay. And I could give you any number of other stories about how. The, the ways they, they degrade Palestinians, um, that to me at least were shocking. And, you know, 
you can tell by the way this whole thing is being processed. Isn't this great news? Maybe the Palestinians will finally see the light that Americans just are not are not getting the story. And it's it's a very ugly story. Isn't it, it um isn't it in Israel's interest for the Palestinians to have something of their own state or else they're going to have the demographic problem of being outvoted in their own country, right? Well, yeah, I mean, that brings us to the one-state solution. It's not clear to people what Israel's long-term game plan is because they don't seem interested in a in a, in a a two-state solution that the Palestinians would find acceptable. I mean, leave aside the terms of the state. It's just, it's just like if you see how finely intertwined the infrastructure of the settlements is with the territory, it's like you can't unscramble the egg at this point. It's, it's going to be hard just in a physical sense. So... Um, I don't know, you know, Peter Beinert recently came out, you know, the long-standing, you know, liberal Zionist, and finally threw up his hands and said, yeah, there's going to have to be a one-state solution of some kind. He thinks it can be done in a way that uh, safeguards the Jewish people. It probably can be. Um, I mean, I, I would say the one, the one hope of this, of this Kushner thing is that if this makes Israel feel more secure, then maybe they uh, could become less demanding. But as things are, um, I think I think one one state solution is a more likely uh, outcome. See, um, I, from my reading of various pundits who know more than I do, uh, I had three takeaways. One is. The Iraq war might have been helpful at achieving this because the Arab states needed friends. And before we took out Saddam, they had a friend in Saddam against Iran. So they didn't need Israel because Iraq, Iraq was waging a war against Iran. It was a state of belligerence. So uh, they had a frontline defense. Uh, now they don't have a frontline defense, so they need all the friends they can get. Uh, the second thing is... Uh, uh, the U.S. withdrawal from the region also helps that, uh, forces them to look elsewhere for friends. So ironically, our, our withdrawal from having our troops there to, to in part defend Israel actually worked in Israel's interest. And the other, the other thing was from, uh, Walter Russell Meade's piece. I hadn't realized the extent to which the Arab world was just collapsing. I mean, Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, these countries are all basket cases. Libya. Well, see, well, we we turned we and our allies turned Syria into a basket case, and Libya too. Well, and for that matter, if you look at the, I'm not an expert on on Lebanese history, but uh, you know Israel's incursion into Lebanon long, long ago, uh, I think uh, was one milestone um, on the way to uh, well, first this civil war, but um, certain residual problems as well. Um, yeah, no, things are bad. I mean, we, I would say, uh, if you ask, you know, uh, you know, who, who are the most uh, destabilizing countries in the Middle East or do the most to destabilize the, in the Middle East, we are a good candidate. Um, I was, I was going for the dialectical argument that these bad things we did are actually paid some sort of dividend because if we hadn't screwed up all these countries, uh, the Arab world wouldn't have had to buddy up with Israel. So this is the dividend? 
What what is what is, what is so great about what is what what is so great? I, I mean, I, I'm not saying this is a negative development, but what great thing is going to result from this? I, I mean, uh, well, it, it it gives the lie to the it punctures the international lie that these countries really care about the Palestinians and really hate Israel. Well, so. the leaders the leaders certainly don't care about the Palestinians. We've known that for a long time. I mean. Yeah. But after a while, if trade in, in, in if trade works its wonders, as you claim it does, uh, then maybe the street will turn around too. No, could but uh, I mean, ultimately, right now, from our from Trump's perspective, I think, or from Pompeo's or somebody, all of this is in the service of, uh, to some extent of preparing for conflict with Iran. So I'm not, I, 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 I mean, there, there's just many ways this could lead to bad. It's also well in the service of giving these countries' economies something to do when oil prices collapse and oil ceases to be this, uh, incredibly valuable commodity. So they're going to have some sort of, you know, uh, Israeli aided high tech economy or something. I don't know. Yeah. Seems like. I- Seems like a good, I don't know. I, I mean, reasonable tax to take. I, I mean, the the the. Uh, of course, Bahrain is not super big, super big fish. But but and, and you know, by the way, I mean, it has it has a Sunni. I, I I think leadership, but a majority Shia population. That's why it's been so repressive in the past. But I mean, the the, the idea is that other countries are going to follow in in turn, culminating in Saudi Arabia. I assume recognizing Israel. Okay, but all of this just gives us and Israel an incentive to support and sustain brutally authoritarian regimes as we give them more and more weapons. And we think that's great because, hey, maybe they'll use them to have a war with Iran. Well, I'm not so thrilled about that prospect. Good point. Uh, the last the last guy who uh, objected to our support of authoritarians in Saudi Arabia was Osama bin Laden. So He had his upside. Final thought: no. If you if you if you read some columnist who starts off talk referring this as a peace deal, just stop reading, stop reading. Yeah. Not um, to be trusted. I think what you said isn't all that different than what Jeffrey Goldberg said. So, <laughs> the right Goldberg Anschlusses <laughs> said about about this about the peace deal. He didn't say much. He just said, "I haven't he, heard he, anything." He said he, had the, he wrote an article just had the conventional wisdom. Winners and losers. Um, so you want my Epstein update? I've been, I'm waiting for something Speaking to Speaking uh, of somebody who might have been subsidized by both Saudi Arabia and Israel. Uh, first, uh, uh, I, I did, ch- I finally reached my source. There'll be more to come on whether, in fact, this was an official Israeli operation. Um, but, um, my source agreed with Eric Weinstein that they probably didn't, it, this did not have to be a pedophilic ring or a, a, an illegal underage girls ring. That, 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 you know, Weinstein said, well, that, you know, that you, if you're running a Mossad honeypot, and it's not clear that it was a Mossad honeypot, but if you're running a honeypot, why does it have to be an underage girls honeypot? Why can't you, why can't it be a 19 year old girls honeypot? Uh, why does it have to be illegal? 
Well, isn't uh, one answer that then the blackmail, if it's if you're doing blackmail, it's much more right, effective? right, and also who's gonna who's gonna who's gonna sign up with Epstein Blackmail Inc. just to get laid with a with a legal person? You could you know maybe get laid with without his aid, and the answer is they couldn't, and uh, so he sort of had you know he had a girl for every taste. You know, you want you want the nineteen year old, you get the nineteen year old. You want the fourteen year old, well, the fourteen is a little young. You want the fifteen year old to get the fifteen year old, um, and well, and and it, you know, maybe that helped him as like a as like a smorgasbord type operation, but it wasn't really essential that it be pedoph- that it be illegal pedophilia, or whatever the accurate term is for fifteen year olds. Um, okay, I mean, so, I don't, I don't think you know you should underestimate or overestimate how easy it is even for these famous and powerful men to go around finding sex partners without ensuing entanglements that are very complicated of one kind or another. So it's like there's just a sheer, in principle, the hassle-freeness of it. Very good point. But there are prostitutes. Well, right. And in fact, that's the point. I mean, as somebody said, when somebody – who was it who said – when somebody said, why did these like famous actors who could have any number of women – uh, have sex with prostitutes and somebody said they're not paying them for the sex. They're paying them to go away afterwards. You know, that's what I mean. No entanglement, nothing, you know. Right. Um, and and, and the, the problem with, uh, you know, uh, Elliot Spitzer wasn't that he frequented at a, a high, a high, you know, high, high glitz prostitution service, but it was actually a mid-level low glitz prostitution service. Uh, really rich people use much better Hmm. services that do not get detected so so i just i i don't i'm not in that world i don't know how difficult it is it seems to me i would rather use a uh some sort of very expensive madam uh who could be trusted i'd rather use her than epstein but if you go to epstein you get you get the sex and you get to meet stephen hawking so i guess there's a bonus there absolutely Um, who wouldn't who who could pass up that deal the um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, but wait, but where are you going with all this? What, what's the news? I'm just here? giving my report that, that that I wrote a piece saying that Eric Weinstein was wrong. Obviously, the pedophilia isn't was that essential the piece to we the discussed. Isn't that the piece we discussed? That's the piece we discussed last time. Yes, and I said I would check okay. with my source, and and the okay. source said no, you were wrong. Eric Weinstein was right. The all the other thing, I the other thing I uh, I gleaned from the source is yes, the feds do have the tapes. So, and, and so what the hell are they doing with the tapes? Why haven't we heard them? You would think if there were anything anti-Trump on the tapes, it would leak before the election, which is sort of my reaction to the whole current state of the election, which is, uh, you know, now is the time we're getting, we're getting close to election day. Now is the time when you expect the real blockbuster anti-Trump hits to come. Maybe next week, maybe not this week. And instead we get some, former aide to Mike Pence's task force who's voting for Biden, like that's the best you can do? The, 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 the media conspiracy against Trump must have something bigger in the works. Uh, well, you unlike- Like a leak from the Epstein tapes, for example, if there is one that implicated Trump, you would expect it to drop pretty soon, right? Well, you, like you maybe th- right before the first debate. You think there's much more in the way of an ac- actual conspiracy than I do, but... um which we discussed last week, but, um, I don't think Trump is involved. I think that's why it hasn't leaked, but I'm just saying, you know, 
I'm still hoping for the apprentice tape where he uses the N-word. And why and why hasn't Trump gotten a hold of these tapes? I mean, maybe that's what was involved with the machinations of trying to get rid of the U.S. attorney in New York. But, I mean, Trump would have the attitude of Blagojevich, which is, this is something golden. This is the greatest blackmail trove in history. I want control of it. Why, what, what, you know, why is he also fussing he- around with... Trying to control TikTok when you can get the Epstein blackmail tapes. I mean, that's there, there's your well. Is it clear? Can, I mean, an, an interesting question. And he hasn't done that. I don't think. Well, but, does he have the power? An interesting question is like, how dubious is William Barr? He's obvious. I mean, like this week's <clears throat> dubious, or one of this week's uh, evidences of Barr dubiousness, in my view, was. When he, he spoke about this issue of, of coming election improprieties, he said, well, when the Democrats accuse us of planning to, you know, cheat on the election or not accept the results or something, I don't have the exact words or maybe even the exact meaning, but he said, they are engaging in projection. Okay. So that's what, what that means is he's saying they are planning to do these things. So you got the attorney general saying the other party is planning to cheat in the election or not except the result. That is not the job of the attorney general, and it's not a good sign for the health of the democracy when the attorney general is saying stuff like that. But to get back to Epstein, the much more interesting question of Epstein is like, so, so I mean, clearly Barr seems pretty damn partisan, but I don't know that he's so partisan that Trump could say, could you get me those tapes? And Barr would do it. I don't know that they have that kind of relationship. And if they don't, then how does Trump get the tapes? Well, part of his talk was whining about all these under people under in his employee, i.e. U.S. attorneys who don't do his bidding. So the tapes plays into that. And maybe one of the things they're not doing is giving him the tapes. Right. Or t- even telling him what's in it. Right. I mean, if 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 they're prominent Democrats, you know, there's, there's you know, a lot of Senate races. If there are any prominent Democrats on the tapes and coming down to election, you want to know, you know, are they involved? And apparently, maybe Barr isn't being told what he wants to know. The other thing is, ob- you know, Barr lost me when he when he said Epstein killed himself. Okay, he doesn't know Epstein killed himself. It's pretty obvious to me that there's a really good possibility that Epstein was murdered. And to have the attorney general come out and just say, "I have looked at the tapes. Epstein didn't kill himself," implies that there's they have him by the ball somehow. There, there's something he's scared of. He's compromised. Why, why, why would he issue such a sort of obvious, uh, questionable statement? So maybe, uh, somehow there are people involved in the Epstein conspiracy that he doesn't want to piss off, even if it means not giving Trump what he wants. Could be. Of course, uh, you know, it's possible that Trump's name is on one of those tapes. And by the way, I'd settle but for it's just. It's very unlikely. I'd settle for just but a maybe late. Maybe he wants to find out. Okay. I'd settle for just the labels on the tapes. I mean, as you said last time, apparently the labels on the tapes are of the form this person with that person. Um, that would be that would be interesting data, even if you didn't see the tapes. Bob um, in the room with a parrot. Is that where we're heading next? You know, no, but uh, we're getting uh, there though. That, this is anyway. That's my Epstein report. More to come. Uh, don't want to blow my sources scoops, so. I think we want to have your source on, possibly in the parrot room. Oh, um, one day, one day that may be possible. I'm um, looking at some viewer comments and wondering uh, which, if any, um, 
we should address? We, we, there, there was some talk of, uh, discussing whether Biden's foreign policy is going to be more right wing than Trump. Yeah, well, you, you steered me to this piece or more, more, uh, hawkish by, um, I'm going to have her name momentarily. She writes for Medium. And I gotta say, she assembled a pretty effective bill of goods in, um, trying to get us alarmed about how hawkish uh, Biden foreign policy would be. Her name is Katie C-A-I-T-Y, John Stone, on Medium, that the piece is, let's be real, President Biden would probably be more hawkish than Trump. Um, the, uh, yeah, and she had some, like an example was uh, when, uh, when Trump said, you know, he had doubts about uh, whether he should have um, uh, shifted U.S. support from the actual president of Venezuela to the uh, aspiring president. Um, Maduro is one name. I can't think of the uh, the other. Anyway, um, Biden, Biden is like, uh, yeah, Trump's not hawkish enough. Damn it. I'd be for... Uh, you know, uh, in other words, he was seemingly embracing the policies Trump did choose, which is to, in effect, intervene in Venezuelan affairs, uh, with the full force of economic sanctions and even apparently kind of half support, uh, an attempted coup. Um, and, uh, Guaido, I think is the guy's name. Guaido, right. That's the, uh, the guy who would like to be president. And, and, you know, it's a, well, I don't want to get into details, but like, it's far from clear that Maduro is not the legitimate president by the terms of the Venezuelan constitution. Ultimately, his presidency was affirmed by the highest court in the land, as I understand it. And you can say all you want about, well, who appointed the Supreme Court justices? Well, you can ask that about the United States in Bush versus Gore if you want. The fact is, I don't think there's good a good argument for saying that uh, Maduro clearly violated the Constitution to stay in power. He may be a dictator, maybe brutalizing people like many of our allies, some of whom we've just mentioned. But um, anyway, the Biden to, for Biden to casually embrace the kind of gratuitous uh, use of sanctions and the, and the gratuitous intervention in, in uh, other countries' affairs. And, and there were several good examples in the piece. Um, so anyway... There's that. Um, There's there, um. There is yeah. that. He 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 tried to put pour cold water on that notion last night. He came across as a very peacenicky. You know who's uh, got it? Who you mean? Uh, Biden. 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 Good. God yeah. bless him. But but uh, also his people, um, his advisors have said, no, we'll stay in Syria, so we'll have more. You know, keep troops in Syria where they shouldn't be in the first place. To, so we'll have more leverage. Um, you know, in, in fact, where they are, uh, I think, illegally by standard this, reading of international this law. Bu- this bizarre piece by Danielle Plutka in the Washington Post on why she was uh, going to vote for Trump s- said that I think she pretty sure she said one problem with Biden is that he might pull our troops out of Syria. <laughs> so you hear this oh, yeah. all, you know, every different way uh, as if that was a bad thing. Oh well, she's a mind. she's a total neocon. She's AEI, yeah. right? Yeah, that was one of the least convincing pieces ever. But um, um, by the way, you know who's got a podcast? I mean, I don't want to scare you about the competition, but let me just say, 
Did you notice the terrified look on my face? I was actually genuinely terrified. This is scary. Because, I mean, first of all, this person's name plays so perfectly into the name of the podcast, okay? Because if you take the first seven letters of this person's name, the final four of those are S-H-O-W, show. And that, in fact, is the name of the podcast, Dare Show, D-E-R-S-H-O-W. I don't know who this is. Mickey Allen Dershowitz is starting oh, oh, well, a that's... podcast. Can we compete oh, with that? Can we compete with that? Of course. He's implicated in the Epstein scandal. He's 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 walking on thin ice. Um, you know, he's uh-huh. a. Uh, I I was. I, no, I'm not. I'm not. You were you were afraid it was who? <laughs> who is your? Who is your? The rival? I mean, of Natalie Portman may like. Dershowitz, but I'm not wildly impressed with him. I, I thought his great testimony before Congress in the impeachment case was not all that impressive. Well, so. you don't have to convince me not to respect Dershowitz. No, I respect he, him. He I thinks, just don't think he he's thinks that American it. judges should be able to issue torture warrants. I don't. Um, uh, but then again, I, you think that too, don't you? I didn't know that, but uh, I, I just, you know. You're not, denying, are, you're not denying that you agree with him. It's hard to think of people who are so wildly formidable that uh, that I'd be terrified of them. Here's the great threat, though. The, if you ask the question, Mickey, and you can ask the question if you want, and I'll be happy to answer it. If you ask the question, why should people support our Patreon at patreon.com slash parrot room? The answer is... We are besieged with competition from, you know, ever, you know, more and more. They're reproducing like rabbits podcasts from major platforms. New York Times, all these platforms, they, they, they announce a new podcast every day. And what do we know about these major pod, platforms, Mickey? They're the MSM. Will people get the truth from the MSM, Mickey? Uh, only accidentally. And they certainly won't get the swear words that we have. Exactly. Will they get uh, 30% Epstein related content? No. No. Um, The, um, there's there's a serious point in here, Mickey. If people want the kind of candor and Epstein related content that they get from (laughs) us, um, I I do, I do think there is a serious point about the rise of alternative media and the undermining of the mainstream media that's, you know, more even more obvious at Substack with newsletters. Okay, what is the um, point? The point is that it's happening and it's a good development. Yeah, but here's the thing: it's always short-lived. Remember the era of blogs? I know. And, and, then, and then that? the most popular blogs were bought up by big media properties like the Atlantic and Time. And before you know it, there were very few truly independent blogs. You know why? Because Patreon didn't exist then. But if Matt Taibbi or perhaps us can make a living doing what they want and and being subsidized by readers who willingly send them money, why do they need – what is AT&T going to do to lure them into the corporate fold and then kill them? Uh, I don't don't see it. Well, uh, Matt Taibbi has been down that road. He doesn't want to go down that road again. 
No, I think maybe he will see. Uh, maybe he can make it on his own. I think his podcast is still a Rolling Stone thing. Um, okay, but, um, but 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 no, I mean, uh, you know, I think Andrew Sullivan can probably make it happen. Um, I think and maybe we will be able to. I think Andrew Sullivan is going to be making more money on his own than he made in New York. That'd Could be well be. Um, you should plug your newsletter while we're. It's called I have a Cal's newsletter Files. on Substack. It's also called Cows Files. I hope to write a new one soon. It hasn't been wildly uh, frequent, but um, the uh, we can talk about uh, this uh, this hysterectomy story, which I thought was very scary. It started off as uh, ICE has a plan to sterilize women cross the border. It seemed genocidal and racist and as if uh, ICE didn't want them to have any more babies. Uh, it turns out it's, you know, it's a, another well-timed story. It turns out it's one doctor associated with uh, a facility in Georgia that houses uh, uh, would-be asylees, I believe, and he's prescribed two hysterectomies but he prescribes a whole bunch of other procedures that may have the effect of destroying a woman's reproductive capacity, probably for the money. In other words, he, you know, he gets paid by Medicaid. So he's one of these doctors you go to and everything. Oh, we have to take that out. Oh, we have to operate. Uh, and, uh, so it looks like a much less serious story than we thought. It's still a horrible thing, especially, you know, in a culture that values family and childbearing as much as, as, the Mexican culture does you. It's a horrible thing to do to anybody, and uh, I hope they get to the bottom of it and put a stop to it. But uh, it does not seem to be like a genocidal ICE conspiracy. Okay, for now I'll take your word for that. That reminds me, um, one of our commenters said, uh, "Why don't that he'd like to hear me?" argue with you about immigration or at least express my views because I've gotten in the habit of just rolling my eyes when you talk about immigration. I, I don't I don't think I mean we've already been going for more than an hour and a half, but maybe next week I'll at least uh, again present what are my actual views on immigration and where they differ from yours. I want to watch this in the meanwhile I want to watch at least one episode from this Netflix series called Immigration Nation. Have you watched that? No. It's these these filmmakers uh they got the permission of of uh, ICE to accompany them and and so on, uh, and, and they agreed in advance that ICE can only complain about certain kinds of, you know, they, they'd get to look, review it, the footage, and could only complain about certain kinds of stuff. Anyway, they weren't, ICE wasn't happy with uh, some of the results, apparently. Um, but I want to watch some of that, and then maybe we can do that next week. I have a sense that we've had this argument about a year ago. Yeah, but I should and, and uh, it involves you having tremendous sympathy for illegals who are terrified of ice. But um, I do, I do. But but, uh, but I want to have actually fresh anecdotage, so I'm going to watch this series first. Yeah. Okay. Um. The uh, so I think we've been going over an hour and a half, and and if I'm going to um have energy left for the yeah well the parrot room, Bob, there's yeah. There's a solution. See, I, there's no Sudafed where I am. But what do you, you? You're in a Sudafed desert. I'm uh, well. I'm 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 actually I'm in a secure uh, undisclosed location that is uh, 
a half hour drive from the nearest pharmacy. So that, Sudafed will not help me. The other thing about Sudafed yeah. is it's it does exert a stimulating effect on me, but I can only do it if I have like an actual cold or something. Otherwise, it'll just send me into a, a very unpleasant frenzy. Yeah. So I have to get a cold first and then do the Sudafed. And I'm unpleasant, not looking to Unpleasant frenzies viruses. are great TV, Bob. Yeah, well, maybe. I think, I can, I think maybe I can give it to you virtually here through the – well, if we don't make any progress, wow, that's a that's a close up of Sudafed there. Um, <laughs> if we don't get any more Patreonage uh, next week, I may resort to uh, to snorting Sudafed on camera and seeing what happens. Uh, um, quickly, quickly, wait. Uh, somebody compared us to Ricky uh, Paul Doyen compared us to Ricky Gervais. I know who he is, and Carl Pilkington. I don't know who he is. Anyway. Oh, blob-related question. Is Ben Rhodes actually part of the blob, even though he came up with the label? Good question, which I may address some future point. Ben Rhodes came up with the label blob? Yeah. He and Obama together, and apparently, uh, I was just listening to his pod, or the the uh, the podca- the Crooked Media podcast featuring him, and uh, he claims to have done it himself, yeah. Huh. Arguably, he himself is... In some respects, part of it, but okay. We'll, save well you that can clarify this. Next week. You know, the blob was already in in use by uh, in the education world for the world of education reform and hundreds of millions of studies showing. You know, I think Bill Bennett used that term uh-huh. to, for the the education community that he had to deal with as Secretary of Education, and that's a huge fucking blob. That's a gigantic blob. So the term anyway. is a somewhat derivative then. It wasn't wildly original. Yes, correct. Still. Still. Like it's we, a legacy. It's a legacy. I'd settle for a legacy like that. Um, but but we do have a legacy of our own. It's called the Parrot Room. Oh, by the way, should I say this here? Well, somebody, uh, maybe I will discuss this further in the Parrot Room, but somebody DM'd me on Twitter. A person of some some repute. Said, said the parrot room is great. It wasn't Jack. The parrot room is a great idea. Every podcast should have one. And I was thinking maybe parrot room will become a generic term and we will be to parrot rooms what Kleenex is to tissue or something, right? Or, like, or as Ben Rhodes is to the blob. Kind of. No. So, in um, a way. Or, or like Or Kleenex. Xerox is to copying machine. Yeah. Or Kleenex. Yeah. Right. And I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Um, but, you know, Bill Maher has, you know, he has his real time and then he has the extra after show. And that's been going on with a bunch of TV shows for a long time. What I'm is sure that? Meet but the, is that I'm is sure that... Meet the Press has one, too, where they, you know, where they are, they're all cranked up. So they go for an extra segment that's not actually broadcast. Is Bill Maher's thing pay only the the after party? The whole thing is so pay only that I, I don't know. If you oh, yeah, it's extra, on HBO. Think, mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I think it's just one more thing you get. Um, anyway, in in almost all respects, he is not my role model. This would be an exception if it turned out to be the case. So, um, okay. So, anything I else? Like him? Um, you, you, yes. No. Well, you you might. I, I I might have not been surprised by that comment, and I don't um, mean that in, a, in an unflattering way for either of you. It seems to me he's gotten much nicer over the years become an actual nice he's, person. He's got a lot to make up for from years ago. I haven't checked in since. Um, okay. 
So this is. Uh, I, was, uh, I was I was once in a in a in a, in not the after party, but I was once in the a the party. You know, he tapes his show in L.A. and sometimes you get invited to the party after the show where the actual guests mingle. Oh, and and this this was I I, I must have told the story. This was there was this there's this black activist and I forget his name, but he's very articulate and he's also a little crazy. He also thinks he's Jewish and he like dresses in white and at uh, at the at the warm up for the Bill Maher show. The stand-up comedian had had talked about Obama as our first black president, and this guy had stood up in the audience and said, "He's not black." Okay, somehow he has some argument that Obama's not black, and police come and they escort him and the white guy next to him for good measure, just to show they're not racist out of <laughs> out of out of the show. Okay, he's expelled from the show. Yeah, he shows up to the at the after party. Ted, I think is his name. Ted, somebody, the black guy. And, He's a homeless guy. He's a famous homeless. And they let him into the after party party. They let him into the after party. I mean, he he apologized for not actually being homeless, for being like actually staying at somebody's house at the moment. And Bill Maher was incredibly nice to this guy. He treated him just the same as anybody else at the after party. Well, yeah, but he had all these witnesses. He wanted to impress with how nice he is. No, because I don't think he was always that nice. He's. I think he's turned into a nice man anyway. Anyway, he was very nice. That was impressive. Social equality. He treated everybody equally. It's my thing. Is he okay. quit? Say, is he quit saying nasty things about Muslims? He hates all religions equally. Okay. Yeah. By the way, one bad documentary is his anti-religion documentary. It's called Religioso or something. Never super, seen. It. Super bad. Okay. Super bad. Okay. But I want to close on a positive note. Um. I, I can't think of one. So, uh, oh, I know. Um, do people have to go into the parrot room to see the parrot? Can't you give them a preview of the parrot? Uh, I can give them a preview of the parrot. Should I say something for the parrot to repeat? I have to say it. Oh, yeah, go no, ahead. No, it works say for s- me. Okay, go ahead. Um, I'm just a parrot. I can't speak for myself. That wasn't loud enough, I don't think. That didn't work. <laughs> no, I don't think Louder. that's what I said. Oh, okay. I know. Wait. Yeah. Okay. Okay, uh, now try it. I am Mickey's parrot, and if you think I'm entertaining here, you should see me in the parrot room. Uh, didn't quite get there. Maybe. Okay, okay, thank you. Anyway. All right. Cram it, bird. Okay. All right. Thank you, Mickey, for that and for all you do. We will... Yeah, yeah. Uh, we will see you in the parrot room. Bye. Okay, see you, Bob. Bye. Okay, so we are back for a little addendum. We thought we were done. We went ahead and taped the parrot room, and then we found out that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died. And, um, and Mickey, uh, heroically, uh, recovered from what was that? An, a planned nap or something? Or you? I think it was a spontaneous nap. Um, yeah. Well, it it does. This does, of course, change everything, or 
seems to change everything. First, first we should pay tribute. But, you know, honestly, I don't pay enough attention to the Supreme Court to know exactly what specifically well, I should say in tribute to her. So I, I don't know. I, I, I only wrote about her very early on. You know, she was famous for saying that maybe Roe versus Wade wasn't the right way to proceed. Did she on say the abortion that? issue? Yes. Well, that's it was, impressive. It was, but it was credited as she realized that maybe it was a bridge too far or wasn't, uh, you know, the right way to guarantee abortion. But no, if you look at what she was saying, she was really saying that she preferred a different litigation strategy to achieve the same result, mm -hmm. i.e. not, not uh, rely, I think it was relying more on equal protection or rather than privacy. So, so, so she didn't want to return to states the right to... Uh, it, it, the yeah, it, it, was, it wasn't that she recognized a limit to judicial interference. She just wanted them to interfere in a different way. And it was it was a litigator's mm -hmm. okay. uh, objection. It was like, we should take these cases instead of these cases. OK, so she got sort of too much credit for that. But obviously she was I mean, obviously she's a very nice person. Otherwise, she wouldn't have been able to reach across party lines to uh, be best friends with or friends with Scalia, who was also a very nice person. So, mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I, you know, I know nothing negative about her. Uh, you, you would, you would wish that at some point judges would, you know, be more heterodox than she seems to have been, but that's true of almost everybody. Um, the, so, uh, you know, she's a great story and, uh, uh, it's a very sad day. Yeah. Um, before I, I, it, it it does immediately have political ramifications. So I think the Republicans have announced that they're going to try to fill the seat. Have they, they already? Be, really? I think they have. Yeah. Not even they, a decent interval. Who's who, who said it? Do you know? Pretty McConnell? sure McConnell. Their argument is that it's different from Garland because the rule they applied in the Garland case, which is that they shouldn't uh, fill a seat right before an election, only applies when the Senate and the president are of different parties. That's well, their argument. You know, there's a, have you seen the Lindsey Graham uh, videos circulating? No. Well, it's from when, uh, I don't know, I guess he was at the, maybe the Aspen Ideas Festival or some Atlantic gig. I think it's maybe Jeffrey Goldberg interviewing him. I'm not sure. But he seems to say, hey, rest assured that if this, the same thing happens in the, Last year of Trump's presidency, um, we will abide by the same principle, blah, blah, blah. He puts it in kind of a funny way. He says, if after, because he, he tries to establish that, well, the key thing is that the primaries had already begun, so that meant you had to wait. And he says, so I assure you that if in the last year of Trump's presidency, the primaries have already begun, then we will wait until after the the next election or something, which is... I mean, if all he means is this, I, I forget. It, it, maybe that'll provide him with some loophole, and he'll say, "Well, I just meant the 2020 election." And, and you know, I mean, uh, Bill Share I saw on Twitter has already said that he predicts that McConnell will wait until after the election, just on pragmatic grounds, so he doesn't put uh, like Susan Collins under pressure before the election. But um, uh, that's a good point. And also, uh, but they could try to fill it in the lame duck. In a lame duck, so. Well, that's, that's what I, that's what yeah. I mean. Yeah. I, I, that's yeah. what I mean. I mean, I mean yeah. Bill thinks that McConnell will take right. it up after the election. The, the, but one before of the, the inauguration. One of the problems he has is that the, that the establishment Republicans are dropping off 
already saying that they will not vote until the new Congress is seated. So we have Murkowski already said that. People think Romney might say that. And they only have a 53-vote majority. So if they lose a couple more, McConnell is sunk. Now, you would think he would... You'd think he would have checked before he declared he was going to try to fill the seat. Under my principle, which is, you know, Garland would have lost. My principle is the Senate has a right to veto anybody they don't like. So mm-hmm. Garland would have lost. Uh, so the principle is Garland would have lost. Uh, the Senate didn't like him. So if Trump now nominates somebody the Senate likes, right. that's okay by me. Uh, but Not the, by me. Look, it would be one thing if they had said, um, I mean, if they had demonstrated that the Senate was going to reject Garland and had done it. But they didn't. They chose to act as if some principle precluded the Senate even voting on it. Right. That was their claim. Right. That that was the claim, although they claim the principle had this wrinkle that the parties had to what you know, one. The White House and the Senate had to have different parties. So, did they did did McConnell claim that at the time? The right on Twitter claims he claimed that I have not seen it in print yet that he actually claimed. Well, anyway, it. Lindsey he, Graham is on record. What at a minimum, what Lindsey Graham is on record as saying is that that is not the principle. The, the I Aspen, think the Aspen Institute and Jeffrey Goldberg continue their path of destruction. But um, one of the you know it, it's it's possible that the best outcome for Trump might be he proposes somebody, motivates the base, uh, they have a big fight, you know, maybe the vote doesn't come in election day, uh, and, and, and he gets the best election result possible, and then he can decide in the lame duck whether to proceed or not. The 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 danger for his side is that what Greg Sargent pointed out is what if they ran somebody through they lose the election big time, then the Democrats sweep both houses and they add two justices to the Supreme Court and eliminate the filibuster and do the worst of both worlds. Um, I, I, I do not know which way justices cut. I mean, if it's just about abortion, I would think the Democrats would win because, uh, you know, if they say abortion rights are in peril if we, we uh, don't elect a Democrat to fill the seat, I would think that's good for Biden and bad for Trump. But uh, around Twitter, everybody's saying something different. It mobilizes the base. Uh, you know, it, it, it really gets out our vote. And it, and it's, I guess it, they would argue it's about more than abortion. It's about your philosophy of the Constitution. Well, it seems to me, I mean, it mobilizes both bases, right? And and the question is, how many people on each side does it motivate who wouldn't have voted otherwise? Right. And I guess the argument is that Trump has already motivated the left, so... He needs something to motivate the right. Um, the other... You know, that could be that could be. But I, I can imagine there being some pro-life people who are disenchanted with Trump. But uh, I mean, why wouldn't they if they're if they're thinking about it? Why wouldn't they think that ultimately uh, the abortion issue is at stake in any event? I mean, there's a good chance you're going to lose the Supreme Court justice over the next four years. Yeah, it's not. It's, but it's not, on the right. It's not just pro-life. It's the whole culture war thing. Uh, uh, so I, I would think it's a pretty potent motivator. The the other problem is, of course, that Trump will decide to nominate somebody sort of milk toasty to try to show what a statesman he is. 
uh, and they will be stuck with this person, and it'll sort of be the worst of both worlds. Uh, certainly, certainly, there were some milk trusty people he was considering, Kethledge being number one. Uh, and if you care about immigration and not abortion, uh, not and you're not, you know, pro life is not all you care about. Uh, Amy Barrett is not, uh, who was also a, a leading runner-up, is is considered strong on anti-abortion and weak on immigration. So um, she would be a problematic nominee from from at least my perspective. Uh, it's a very complicated calculation uh, he's faced with. Uh, I guess McConnell has sort of taken it out of his hands, which which is not such a bad idea. A, a question I have. I think in, in any event, once Garland happened... In a situation like this, if Trump proceeds as he apparently will, well, Trump uh, tr Trump could easily tell McConnell, "No, you're wrong." But go ahead, sorry. You think there's a chance of that? Yeah, I mean he he tells McConnell, "You're wrong" all the time. But go ahead. Well, if there's an attempt by the Republicans to fill the seat, either uh, either before the election or after an election that Trump has lost, um. I think in any event, after Garland, uh, you would have seen some kind of protest, some kind of street demonstration against that. I think now that demonstrations are, are they're just a thing, they're happening now, they're in progress, uh, I, I think you could see an extremely robust street protest. I can imagine people uh, going to McDon uh, McConnell's house and protesting. And sure, that, it. They might overdo it, as they always do. They might well the overdo it. And this might be, uh, Trump might want to provoke that. Right. I, I just don't know. I have no, That's it's a wild thing. card, the, but it could the, get ugly. The initial calculation is, does Trump gain anything by trying to actually ram this through before the election? And I don't quite see it. He still turns out the base if it becomes... A contested issue, you know, this is about the Supreme Court. He turns out his base for the election, gets the best result he can from the election, uh, and then he can do whatever the hell he wants in the lame duck. Uh, the, the only counterargument I've seen on Twitter is, yes, but if he has a great court victory, people will reward him. Well, I don't think he gets rewarded that much for his victories. So I, I think the more you analyze it, the more Bill Scherer is right and says in that uh, they're, they're probably going to push it off till after the election and then, and try then, to fill and then it if in. Trump wins, it won't be particularly controversial, but right. if he loses, it will be. Yeah. But who cares if he loses, he's lost. So the yeah, but if he loses, well, I mean, Democrats care if they fill the seat after he's lost, that's what the controversy will be. Right. But even from Trump's point of view, there's no downside. I'm trying to figure out what he'll do. There's no downside in ramming it through after he's lost. He's already lost. The other complication is the election may well be winding through the courts in December. So Trump appoints a new justice. Does the justice sit on the cases that will decide the election? Whoa. That's, uh, it gets more and more complicated. Wait, I hadn't even thought about this problem. The um, shadows... So so, so, yeah, so, so I mean, long. look, the election could well go to the Supreme Court. So suppose it's not filled 
I mean, I had thought that uh, in, a, in, a, in any kind of close case, Roberts was really likely to lean kind of against Trump in a close election case because I think he really doesn't want uh, the court to seem to have, um, you know, un- unduly leaned in, in Trump's direction. And I also don't think he likes Trump. But, it, it but now you're talking about an eight-person court, potentially. Right. So it, 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 de- I, I've seen it go the other way, but I think you're probably right. It depends what posture it is. If, if Biden has won the popular vote overwhelmingly, and it's just a question of some ballots in Wisconsin that, you know, or, or, or some Republican state where the governor is holding things up, yeah, then Roberts goes with Biden. But if it's, you know, if it actually looks like Trump won and Biden is holding it up, it, it might be different. Um, it could go both ways, but I agree that in the, in most cases, I would think Roberts would side with uh, with Biden. Uh, um, and then coyotes show up and they eat them all. I think that's the end of. Wait, was it in the paragraph um, that we discussed the coyotes, or? Oh yes, we did. Sorry. So that's a, coyote- that's an illusion. Look, if people want to understand that illusion, yeah. they have only one option. <laughs> okay. Um, that's sort of all. That's yeah. as far as like. I, I've thought about it. I mean, my great worry is that Trump nominates some alleged conservative Republican who's not like that at all, and uh, like Kethledge, and we're in the soup. And so well, we get a, a wimpy Republican. I, I, in general, I would rather not have who the Democrats are going to offer because Merrick Garland was the best they had to offer, and he's not good enough for me. So, Well, um, I just think they're... Assuming that Trump moves ahead either before or after the election, there are legitimate grounds for extreme outrage by Democrats. I mean, you just don't. What What is even the logic behind them saying, uh, it, "Oh, it only matters if it's two different parties"? What What, what How does I that? I guess say? the argument is that then there's a then there's sort of equipoise. It's a tie, and we ask the voters to be the tiebreaker. Um. Equipoise, it, it's a tie. Well, why don't you just go ahead and see if there's equipoise? I mean, well, right. Um, That's the counter argument, and I guess the argument would be, well, then you're just going to get a wimpy judge who's in the middle of the road. And the counter argument is, what's that happens wrong with all the time? Ju- I mean, what's e- wrong either, with a wimpy judge who's in the middle of the road? Either something close to the election should await the election or not. It seems to me. I just don't understand any. I, I don't right now see any rigorous logic behind the split parties idea. Just seems to me like total bullshit. I'm pretty sure that the only way to interpret what Lindsey Graham said in that video is that that's not going to be the issue. He's like guaranteeing that in some sense, in the final year of a Trump presidency, they will follow the pattern established with Garland. Um, and I just think, I just think it's grounds for outrage and like, I'm ready to hit the streets. This is just fucking bullshit. So, so if Graham, uh, if Graham decides this is a bad idea, and Murkowski and Romney, McConnell's down to fifty votes. That would, you know, Mc- Graham's up for re-election, so he can't afford to do anything, make any missteps here. Uh, it does. It, it, this whole thing might collapse of its own weight. Well, even assuming McConnell, McConnell might just say, "We'll we'll decide after the election what we're going to do," e- and even you know, assuming go away. That, even assuming that Graham's. Um, 
wording in that Atlantic video doesn't leave a loophole. And I only watched it once, so, you know, judge your minds may vary, but um, I certainly wouldn't assume that Graham will abide by it. I mean, Graham will do what's in his political interest, and that'll probably mean uh, disregarding the video. I'm not so sure. Uh, the, you, what, the, you, think he's, you think he's so principled that he'll stand by his word? I think he might get so much bad press and be subject to such devastating negative ads that he decides to play it safe. Well, it's kind um, of, again, it's kind of ambiguous wording. There, there was certainly the general assurance that, hey, believe me, we'll follow the pattern we followed. I don't know if he, I, I don't know if he said it before the uh, congressional elections. I, I don't remember when it was. And the, so so I don't know if he knew what the partisan uh, composition of Congress would be. You you would think McConnell would have very carefully gone through all his contested elections and figured out who it helps and hurts, and he must have decided it helps more than it hurts to go through with it. Uh, for example, I could easily see it helping Joni Ernst. I get, and I guess Susan Collins can say, I will be the voice of reason as I always am, you know, and, you know. And what? And what, what does that mean? Well, I, she's just trying to get vo votes that she's not going to be lockstep for McConnell, but she's willing to go ahead with nominating somebody for the court. The other issue is who's going to want to be this political football? I mean, Merrick Garland, uh, God love him, you know, said, go ahead, Obama, oh. make me the sacrificial lamb. What respected judge is oh, going to want their oh, career any to end? judge. What? Mm -hmm. Well, if it puts them on the Supreme Court. Well, it might and it might not. It might They might be an ignominious footnote in history. Well, I think it might be much clearer by the time it's time to name someone whether or not they're going to get through. That's going to be the day after tomorrow. <laughs> what do you mean? I mean, no. I mean, I things, are going, things have to move fast if they want to do anything before the election. Well, right. But they may well wait until after the election, but still yeah. do it after Trump loss, which will be. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's almost worse, right? Isn't that almost worse than, than, than doing it before election whose outcome is unknown? If you lose, if you win, I guess you do get you still get an ask. But I mean, worse in terms of seeming to be at odds with the logic of what they did with Garland. Um, yes, but not let the record show that even before this happened, before we knew that Ginsburg died, I said that the the McConnell rule was crap. And the, yeah, I mean, and, as it happens, we discussed that in the yeah, dialogue, and, right? Yeah, in the dialogue which was preceded this segment, mm -hmm. uh, the, the 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 rule is just who has the power, who has the votes. If you have the votes, well, I mean, you can confirm somebody. In a certain sense, yeah, that's always the rule. But there, there is the argument the, that people in power who care about the republic and and respect for you know norms and the constitution and so on and don't want blood in the streets um, actually stand by principles they articulate. There's that argument too. I mean, obviously McConnell is basically, so far as I can tell, a completely cynical operator who will not. Uh, abide by principles would, he's articulated. But, it would be, be it would have been better if McCall had said, "We don't like this guy. Let's put a vote," and they'd voted down Garland. I agree. Yeah. That I mean, he's, much, he's much already better. said that thing some months ago, and he got a laugh from his audience. Like, yeah, if if somebody uh, come, you know, if a seat opens up in the in the closing months, yeah, I'll fill it. And they laughed because it's so cynical. 
and and that is an acknowledgement that it's a cynical move at odds with the actual logic behind what they did with Garland. Uh, that's true. I had one more thought, which I've completely lost now. But um, you know, this is—I mean, seriously—the republic is, you know, is showing real signs oh, yeah. of strain, and uh, this is this is well, that, really no time for cynicism. That but. was the una- the unanimous the unanimous sentiment on Twitter was we're in big trouble. The um, yeah. the, I guess I, I one of one of my readers emailed me about four months ago and said, you know, I've been talking to oncologists and they say, I asked them how long somebody with Ginsburg's diagnosis has to live and they say three or four months, which would put it right now. Mm. And why, why don't you assign a piece on this? And I stupidly ignored this. Uh, but what can I say? One of the many tragic things uh, that surround what? us. This reader was very smart. So, yeah, never ignore your reader mail. I don't. We read it. Right. Um, so, anyway, we've already uh, uh, a message to patrons. Do not expect to hear this discussed in the in the parrot room. We have already taped that. We taped that in between right. this right. and in between whatever. We didn't know about okay. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And we'll we'll have more to talk about obviously next week. Needless to say, okay. That's about that. I, we uh, exceeded my reservoir of relevant knowledge uh, the moment I, I hit record. And, and I think now <laughs> we've uh, pretty much exhausted yours. So is that about it? But you won, you, you won on outrage. So I'm sorry, but God damn it. I mean, if you were in my uh, if you were uh, a Democrat, wouldn't you be pretty pissed if McConnell turns around and pulls this shit? It is um, at obvious odds yes. with any actual plausible logic underlying what he pulled the first time around, which was dubious in the extreme on it, the face of it. If you really believed in democracy, you wouldn't try to get all your aims accomplished through the Supreme Court anyway. But yes. Well, there's that too. And there's also the fact that, that McConnell could have just been honest and said, no, bring it to the Senate. Screw it. And he ain't gonna, he ain't gonna get through. I agree. No, I, but he didn't do that. I'm open to the possibility that McConnell is an unprincipled jerk. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, uh, we, we end on a note of uh, Concord. Okay. All right. Thanks. See you See next, next time. time.